ending your story is to yeah albatross is a very good term for it barbara uh, in the chat room barbara says it's an albatross and you and and you do end up with that feeling of it's never going to end and and then you start to hate it and um like my tagline my short pitch says tonight 10 bodies later you still don't know the have an ending and you hate yourself i mean because it's just like it's so and then you just like put it down and you walk away from it and you never pick it up again and that's how stories um really huge stories in fandom get abandoned it's because they don't have an ending and they keep writing hoping an ending is going to come to them and then one day they realize they're ne- they don't have an ending and they're never going to have an ending ending and then it goes on hiatus or it gets abandoned officially and then you, the the readers are left wondering what the fuck happened um <clears throat> I think the ugliest thing you can do to a reader is do a cliffhanger on a story that you haven't finished. If you're posting in chapter format and you have a cliffhanger at the end of a chapter, it better fucking be because you already have the next chapter written. Do not be that asshole who in- you know and there was actually you know what it probably isn't all assholery some of it. A long time ago, there was like this writing tip sheet that went around, um, and one of the things that this asshole who wrote it said was to end your chapters on cliffhangers. And for like years, and it was like, I think it was done in a professional conference, because this thing got passed around like like fucking candy. And for years, I mean, I do mean for fucking years afterwards, there would be all these books that would end constantly. Each fucking chapter would end on a cliffhanger. I mean, it would be like, and it was the most nerve-wracking experience you could have as a reader because every single chapter ended with somebody in peril or somebody in the middle of an argument or somebody getting caught doing something, and then it would end like that, boom, done, end, next chapter. And what was worse is these assholes didn't know how to handle a cliffhanger to begin with. So they would put this cliffhanger in, and the next scene in the next chapter wouldn't even address their fucking cliffhanger. I'm a little bitter about this, and I'm going to tell you why. I was reading this series, and I can't tell you the author's name because I've already forgotten it. And this is going to sound like some ultimate reader entitlement. And I we're all guilty of it once or twice, and this is my story. I was reading this story, and it was supposed to be a trilogy. And she had written book one and book two. And book one ended with a cliffhanger. But book two came out six months later. And you're like, okay, that's fine, it's fine, it's fine. But then book two ended with the fucking hero presumed dead. And the author died. Dudes. Don't do that. I'm not saying it's your responsibility to make sure your fix are all wrapped up in a neat little bow in case you die tomorrow. I'm just saying that if you're going to do something like that to a reader, already have the next... They should not have published the first two books without having all three. It was very bad planning. Um, Her death was not unexpected. She was ill. Um, uh, Please don't guess (laughs) the title in the chat room. (laughs) 
Um, it's just, it was, re- oh, God, it was so annoying. The only thing that I ever had experienced worse was I was reading this romance novel, and it was epic, and, oh, their their love was amazing and intense and perfect. And he died in the last chapter. And I took that book outside to my daddy, who was um, burning something. He He had a big oil drum that he burns stuff in because, you know, we're country. That's how we do stuff. Um, and I handed him this book, and I said, you need to throw this book in the fire. And I burned a book. But what? Don't do shit like that. Just don't. Oh, it was so fucking horrible. Don't tell me you're. this is a romance and then kill the hero in the last fucking thousand words of a book. And this book was like, I want to say, it was a hundred and... I mean, this was a huge novel, and oh, he said, are you sure? I said, yeah, burn that bitch. And he burned that bitch. It was very satisfying. Because the ending sure as hell fucking wasn't. Okay, anyways, I think it's important when you are creating your ending or deciding what your ending will be that it um, wrap up upwards of 80% of your plot points. That way, if you want to come back and, and do a sequel, you you have a little wiggle room. But don't leave any um, dangling plot points that are huge. Like, give yourself a little bit of room to write a sequel, but don't give yourself so much room that by the end of it, your reader hates you and hates your book and doesn't pick up part two. One good way to write a sequel, in, especially in original fiction, is to introduce secondary characters that can become your main characters in future installments. If you're writing a series like um, Harry Potter, uh, she structured her basic, you know, her, um, her novel basically around the school year for Hogwarts, um, and that gave her an established beginning and middle and end because the beginning was the first, basically the first week of school, um, or just the, the summer, and then school started, and then the middle was around Yule break, and then the ending of the book always came around May when when Hogwarts let out for summer. So she had a structure in place for each of the books, and even in Deathly Hallows, Harry wasn't in school, but she kept that structure. There was still that structure of the school year in the background for, for, for Deathly Hallows. And so you knew going into Deathly Hallows, if you'd have paid attention to how the other books were constructed, that around May... Voldemort was going to die. <laughs> That's just, I mean, you know, I I hope you got that out of it. I mean, because it was, it was a very obvious structure, especially after book three. I mean, you know, she, it was very established, you know, how that was going to go. Um, so when you're establishing your ending, you need to uh, wrap up most plot points all of your major plot points. Uh, I highly recommend that you don't end with a death. Don't end with a character death unless it is the bad guy. Uh, If you have to kill a secondary character, do it earlier on in the book. Don't do it at the end. Because if you do it at the end, it's going to leave a sour taste in your... um, 
in your reader's mouth? Kind of like how we all feel about Fred. It's There's some foreshadowing for Fred's death in um, The Deathly Hallows because George and Fred are separated and George is, is injured. Um, and then at the end of the book, when George and Fred are separated, Fred is killed. So there was a little bit of foreshadowing there if you pay attention to it. Um, I I desperately wish he killed Percy instead, don't we all? Oh, Ron. Ron would have been great. <laughs> but, you know, you can fight that all day long. But what the, the, the end result is, is even though she killed a lot of people in that chapter, uh, those final chapters of the book, I mean, she killed Snape, um, she killed Dobby, she killed Fred, she killed Tonks, she killed Remus. Um, lots of kids died at Hogwarts, Colin, uh, just, there was, there was so much death at the end of Deathly Hallows that it, you kind of choked on it as a reader. And so you have to ask yourself when you're constructing your ending of a book or of a series, do you really want to choke your reader on that much death and heartache at the very end? Because it wouldn't be my choice. Um, when you look at the Harry Potter series, um, it begins with an immense loss for Harry. And it ends with an immense loss for Harry. Um, he defeats Voldemort in the first book at the expense of his parents when he's an infant. Uh, at the end of the series... He loses all these people who are very important to him, and he wins. But it's a really empty win. It is as empty a win as his first one, because he had to sacrifice so. And you have to ask yourself as you're pushing through this series as a reader, how much legitimately can your character take? How much could Harry take without falling literally to pieces? Um where is his breaking point? If it had been Ron who died instead of Fred, would that have been Harry Potter's breaking point? And the question, and the answer is probably yes, because Ron was his first friend, and he was so attached to that friendship that he forgave Ron everything that Ron did wrong, um, betrayal after betrayal, like it was a hobby, and and Harry forgave him continuously for it in canon, and. If Ron had died, that could have very well been the last straw, I mean the final straw on Harry Potter's ability to function because he'd already lost so much. To lose Ron or Hermione in that last book would have been it. It would it would have been, you know, nuclear. It would have been a nuclear event for Harry Potter, which is why in the end Ron wasn't killed, and it was Fred who died. Uh, so when you're constructing your story, uh, whether you're building a single book or you're building a series, you need to um, make rules for yourself, not only to shelter and control the um, the method by which your characters move through stories, but also to ensure that you don't break your character's 
completely. You have to build and break and build and break and build and break. But you got to leave them on a strong foundation or your reader is going to hate you. And they're going to hate the book and they're going to hate the ending and they're going to get on fanfiction.net and write 3,000 fix where Harry kills everybody and lives <laughs> and Hedwig doesn't die and and. Dobby, which is what happened. There was this huge amount of, I mean, every time a book came out, there was an influx of of, of fiction in um, the Harry Potter fandom. But when book seven came out, and Hedwig died, and Fred died, and Snape died, and we, you know, Dumbledore had died in book six, and there was just like there was just Moody died, and there was just so much loss in Deathly Hallows that the fandom. Exploded. I mean, it was like boom. And if you look at, um, you know, the Hobbit fandom, um, the Battle of the Five Armies did the same thing um, to the fandom. Now, everybody expected those deaths if they had read the book. And shame on you if you haven't read the Hobbit. Uh, it, so those, it, the deaths themselves weren't a surprise, but they were. But you were already so invested in these characters that the very idea that they all almost, you know, the Durans die um, at the end of The Hobbit. It's just like it's so immensely unfair. And doing that to your reader uh, can come with consequences. Now, for someone like Tolkien, who wrote, who got paid by the word, uh, (laughs) and is no longer here to answer to those fans and back then you know the i mean i'm sure the hobbit ending was was terribly acceptable um at that point but for a lot of people in um in this time the ending is so is is so terribly unfair that that they can't help but fix it now the hobbit is a beautiful book it it is it is beautifully written it's it's rhythmic it's it's got this amazing pace and structure and the characters are vivid and you're you just you you go on an adventure with Bilbo. I mean it is like immense. It is amazing. It's a great book to read. Um and like Rogue says in the chat room, it's a great book to read out loud. It really is. It's just it's beautifully written. But the ending is tragic and so if you are Looking at creating a story like that, you have to prepare yourself and also prepare your characters for it in such a way that by the time the end comes, your reader is prepared as well. Now, when it comes to The Hobbit, um, in the book version, by the time you get to the Battle of the Five Armies, you know... I mean, it is, it is, it's there. It's immense, and when when it happens, it's it's heart rendering. But um, I didn't expect anything different. So when you're structuring your ending, you have to recognize the impact of your ending on your story and on your reader and on your characters and if you plan to come back to this 
if you plan to come back to this story, um, your ending can't be final. Do you, do you understand what I mean? It has to be, you have to give yourself room to grow a series if you're going to do that with a series. So there has to be this, um, you got to give us a little bit of wiggle room. If it's only going to be one story, it's going to be a one shot, it's going to be a one book, you're not going to go back, you're not going to hit this again. Um, it's, it's it's not much to worry about. But if you're structuring a trilogy or a series of books, like seven or eight, you know, 10, 15 books, whatever, whatever you plan, um, you have to do it in a way that um, gives yourself, just just gives you some room, you know. And how you do that is up to you. One of the most interesting series out right now, um, for me personally, is the In Death series by J.D. Robb. And J.D. Robb structures these books like procedurals, um, like you might see on TV, like an SUV episode or major crimes or, you know, just one of these cop shows. And so really the book itself is just a big cop show. Um, and in the background there's all these different things going on and her romance with her husband. Um, and you uh, – it's just – it's you know that by the time she gets – Catches the bad guy, the book is going to end, but the series isn't over because Eve is still going to be trucking along, doing her job, doing her thing. Um, and that's a way to structure a series. And if you structure a series around an event that happens every time, and in her case, um, Eve Dallas is a uh, murder cop. She, she's an, um, she, um, she is a homicide detective, and lieutenant. Anyways, <clears throat> whatever she is, <laughs> lieutenant. Um, for the NYPD um, in the future. And so you know that essentially somewhere in the first chapter you're, we're going to get a body. We might get several. And then um, by the end of it she'll have caught the hero. And whatever little personal thing that has happened between her and her husband will be resolved until the next book. And so it's a very neat package. So when you're creating series work, it's important to package your episodes or your installments or your books, ever, novellas, ever how you want to do it. Um, you um, TV shows are very good at episode format. Uh, it, the episode itself has a beginning, a middle, and an end. I did it with Sentinels of Atlantis. Um, each episode builds on a central premise, but they each have a beginning, and a middle, and an end that's very defined. There's, you know... It's an act one, two, and three play within 30 minutes or an hour on TV or 5 to 10K as it comes to Sentinels of Atlantis when I was creating that series. So um, you just need to know where you're going. If you don't know where you're going, the ending will be abrupt. And Julie says it's like being slapped, and that's true. It's absolutely true. If your ending is abrupt, it'll put your reader off. And like, what the fuck was that? What happened? Did she just get tired of writing? That's the first thing I think. If I'm reading something and the ending is abrupt, I'm thinking, did that bitch just get tired of writing? Because if that's the case, and she could have just said it, P.S., I'm tired of writing. What? So if your ending, if if you don't have your climax, and then your falling action after the climax, and then a smooth transition into your ending, 
it becomes just abrupt kind of door shut in your face moment for for the reader it's not satisfying it's a terrible way to end a story so try not to do that it'd be great one excellent way to end a romance novel is sex um you have the um climax of your story and the falling action and the falling action can be the sex and then a conversation you know lovey-dovey romantic conversation at the very end and it ends on a really happy note a lot of romance readers expect a sex scene at the end of a book because it's just it's an excellent way to um to slow the action of your story down i mean you have your big climax moment and then you your characters kind of um, reconnect intimately and physically and emotionally in the falling action and so it allows you to uh to end your book in a very positive uh, format is very satisfying to the reader. They got the I love you, they got the sex, yay, you know, and, and everything is fine, and nobody died. <laughs> and you won't get as much hate mail, you know. But I, I think that ending a book on a cliffhanger is the ugliest thing a writer can do to a reader outside of killing the hero of a book. I mean, the only thing that would actually be more tragic in Deathly Hallows um, than the death of Fred Weasley would have been if Harry Potter actually did die. If he had actually died, that would have been like a punch in the face. That would have been J.K. Rowling punching her reader in the face. Well, obviously she didn't do that, but doing that is 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 a good way to lose readers. They'll never come back because they don't trust you anymore. If you develop a character over seven books like she did with Harry Potter, and the readers are super invested in Harry this whole time, this whole way, and they and they keep waiting for him to get his happy ending because every freaking time he gets close to a happy ending and something terrible happens and somebody dies and he doesn't get it. And so if she had actually killed him at the end of the series, it would have been a horrific ending and it, she would have lost a lot of readers who would never have trusted her and would have never picked up another book from her because you don't give your time upwards of 10 years to a character and then kill them off like that. It's just it's especially a title character like Harry Potter. So your your ending has to be satisfying, it it has to be logical, it has to be um I'm not really thinking what the word is. It it has to be uh wait's not the right word. It it has to end on a on a note that you can handle. Whether it be a positive note or a sad note or a somber note, ever how you want to end it, it has to it has to be certain and final. Even if it's like book one in a series, your ending for your story can't be like, oh, well, what happens next? It's oh, he survived his first year. That's great. Where's book two? <laughs> That's acceptable, but. If you leave your reader hanging on the end of a cliff and you do that repeatedly, they'll start to hate you 
and they'll start to hate your work, and then they won't buy your work, and then your agent won't buy your work, and you know, or won't you know, your agent will fire you because publishers aren't buying your work, and then the next thing you know, you're working at McDonald's. <laughs> Not that Jackie Rowling would end up working at McDonald's, but you, but you see what I mean, you know. Writers, all writers want to stay home and write. They want to be able to write, 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 and make a living, make enough to live a living to write and not have to get an outside job that it takes away from their writing. Um, so you, if you have that goal in your brain, you need to structure your work in such a way that it sells. Then you have writers like Nicholas Sparks who thrive on terrible endings. I mean, his books thrive on it. You don't pick up a Nicholas Sparks book and expect a happy ending. You expect your heart to be torn out. And apparently, that's what he does. And you expect to be destroyed emotionally when you pick up a Nicholas Sparks book or you watch a movie based on a Nicholas Sparks book. It's what you expect, and it's what he delivers every single time. But what would happen if he stopped delivering it? I mean, he has a core base that buys everything that he writes with the expectation that sometime during the reading of this novel, they're going to want to stab themselves in the forehead or maybe him. Um, So what happens if he stops doing that? If he stops meeting that expectation and suddenly his heroes stop dying or his heroines live and everybody lives happily ever after, how many happily ever afters could Nicholas Sparks get away with before he got called on it? Hey, dude, you need to stop. That's not what I'm buying and that's not what I'm paying for. So over time, your audience comes to expect a certain thing from you. They come to expect um, a certain quality, a certain... um, kind of character, a certain uh, tone, and um, an, they come to know you as a writer. And when you when you don't meet those expectations, um, yeah, sort of like when Anne Rice got religion, it was a little it was a little startling, right? You know, like what 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 do you, what do you mean, Anne? Where are the vampires? Where's the vampire fucking? And it was really abrupt, right? I mean, one day you're just happily going along, reading Queen of the Dam, and the next thing you know, Anne Rice found Jesus. And it was, like, really shocking. Like, I don't even know what to do with that. You just you just don't even know what to do with it. So, I, you know, so you have to be careful once you establish yourself as a writer um, because your audience has a certain expectation, Um um, and you've gathered that audience, then, and you've built that audience on um, the work you've already produced. So if you underperform, or if you don't perform in the same fashion, or you don't deliver the product they expect you to give them, you will suffer for it. Okay, so <clears throat> I don't know how I've answered that first question really. Um, just. I, I think the, the the best strategy for having an ending is actually planning for your ending, knowing where you need to go, knowing where your characters need to be when the book ends, and um, sticking to it. Don't let yourself fall into that trap of thinking your ending is not what it should be. Uh, get yourself a really good alpha reader 
And if it's at the end of the book your alpha reader hates your guts, then you've made a mistake somewhere. Um, unless you want them to hate your guts, because that could be a goal too. It just depends on what your goal is for the book, you know, because you might enjoy that kind of thing. I don't know. I don't appreciate hate mail personally. That's why I don't do character death, because it always ends in hate mail. Um, So just make a plan and stick with your plan and have an alpha reader who – you know, like with movies, did you, they have test audiences, and the test audience can decide whether or not the ending of a of a movie works. And if it doesn't work, sometimes it'll get reshot or it'll be re-edited in a different way so the movie ends differently than the test audience got. So, um, a good way to make sure that you've delivered on your goal for a story is to have an alpha reader um, reader or two who can tell you whether or not you've done what you set out to do. Um, and I think that my biggest failing um, as a writer outside of actual action sequences could be falling action. Um, Julie says, some literal strategies for writing through the sometimes less interesting falling action. I think that I fall back on is emotional consequences because falling action, because you know, the, the climax of a story is normally um, a physical event. There's something happens, something external happens that um, impacts your character. Um, so it's part of your external plot. That's where your climax usually comes from. And your falling action, um, I get my falling action from my internal plot, my internal motivations. How um, are my characters responding emotionally and mentally to the event? And that's how I build my falling action. I'm not sure if it's always successful, um, but that's that's the way I approach it. So if you say, like, I think the falling action needs to, um, in order to be interesting, has to have some kind of emotional punch. There has to be some kind of, oh, fuck moment. Like just, oh, what the fuck was I thinking? Or um, that was so great. Or that was so terrible. Oh, my God. You know, there there needs to be some kind of emotional connection your character makes with the climax of the event in um, the falling action, and that way you smooth down into your ending really easily. It's, it becomes um, it's a very satisfying thing when you can demonstrate that your character had an emotional upheaval and growth in your story. And the best way to accomplish that is to, in the falling action of your material, to give... Um, your character some emotional depth and consequences to the action. Like if there's been a killing or if somebody's been arrested or if um, it it cuts down on the abruptness. Because if, if you have event, 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 boom, 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 and then end, you you get that abrupt ending that, you know, that no one wants. No one wants an abrupt ending. So if you go boom, boom, climax, and then consequences. Emotional impact. I love you for this. I hate you for this. I can't believe that happened. You just, 
work your character through the emotional impact of your climax as your falling action. And that kind of brings your reader down with you. And you guys can't see this, but I'm actually moving my hands around like I can, like you can fucking hear it, see it. Um, and hear it, obviously, since that's, that's all you can do is hear me talk. And so if you have your climax up high and then have the emotional impact of that climax event, bring your character down slowly. You're also bringing your reader down. Your reader is on a high. And so if you bring them down slowly with your character, there's the consequences of the, you know, there's the emotional impact. There's the relief that, oh, this is resolved. You you create a situation where you can smooth out into an ending that's both emotionally satisfying and structurally sound for your plot. And I hope that makes sense. Does that make sense? <clears throat> I I agree. Um, in the chat room, Julie says that diehard pantsers have a harder time with falling action. I agree because when you're pantsing, you might not know your climax until you're literally on top of it. Surprise. And so suddenly you're you're on top of your climax and then you're like that creates a a huge moment in a pantser's relationship. and I have pantsed. I mean I I've done it. Um I don't like to do it, but I have done it on the fly when I when I had no choice um and I had to sacrifice my process for expediency. Um and what I discovered in doing that is that on top of my climax I had a problem. It's kind of like getting stuck on at the top of a Ferris wheel. You're you're just stuck up there cuz they've stopped the damn thing and you don't know where to go and you, well, you can't go anywhere because you're stuck at the top of a Ferris wheel and you're waiting for that little dude down there at the bottom to push the button again cuz he's got some asshole on and you haven't even gotten a full circle around and you're stuck up there and you don't know what to do. And so then it starts, and and you have to slow your story down. You have to slow your reader down. You have to get some resolution for your characters. And sometimes you fail spectacularly in your rough draft, and your falling action um, makes your story fall apart. And this is a point when a lot of inexperienced writers will give up on a project, especially if they're pantsers. And be like, oh, fuck it. And then they just walk away, and they never come back to it. Um, and that's the problem. That's the real problem with pantsing. It's not um, the, uh, the the plot holes which you can fix in a draft. Um, it's it's not the uh, the and then syndrome which we'll discuss next. It's because that too can be fixed in your second draft. It it's that moment when you've got your climax and it almost feels like an ending, but you know it's not, and then you're stuck. And if you're too ramped up, the falling action will just, it, it will literally crumble under you, um, and you won't have a foundation to set your consequences and your emotional impact on for your characters, and then your ending falls apart. And that's the that that's a pitfall of pantsing, that if you get there and you can't get back, up, then you you get frustrated and you walk away from the project and you never pick it up again. Or you have an extremely stupid, fucking terrible ending and you keep it. I've done that too. And even now, years later, I 
picked up a book where I did that, and I had pants the damn thing. I did. I pants the fuck out of that shit, and I, <laughs> I picked it up and I read it, and I was like, oh my god, you asshole! How'd you ever get another contract with that stupid ending? And it was like, it's just because it's you know, in retrospect, I can see, I can see the moment that my climax happened and my falling action fell flat on its face, and I was like, oh shit. But in, but it's too late. Has sailed. It is halfway to Australia, and you're stuck with it. So I don't recommend pantsing on things when you have a deadline, unless you absolutely have no choice, and then you have time for a second draft so you can fix the problems. The best way to avoid and then syndrome, and that, and that's what that means is, is that it's one event piled on top of another. They, you know, it's like boom, 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 and and there's no end in sight, right? There's no end to that snapping of event after event after event, and that's because they're not a plotter, and they haven't really paid attention to the structure of their story. And what happens is, is that when you're plotting, you you develop over time, and it's not immediate. And so don't expect it to be immediate and don't get disappointed or upset when it when it doesn't fall into place the first 15 times you do it. Because literally, I mean, don't, I mean, feel that you learn over time. You learn to space your events throughout your book and throughout your chapters in a way that not only gives you your desired beginning and middle of an end for each chapter, but it builds on your story so that, say, if you write 15 chapters. Your first five chapters are your beginning. Your next five chapters are your middle. Your climax happens somewhere between chapter 13 and chapter 15, and usually the last five to 6,000 words of your novel are, whether it's chapter 14 and 15 or just chapter 15, depending on how you structure your chapters, um, will be your falling action and your resolution. Because you must have a resolution, otherwise you get that abrupt ending that you and you and you'll and you'll hate yourself. So, I think that and, the and then syndrome comes from people who don't pay attention to the structure, the overall structure of their novel, because it's not only important to plot by event and by chapter. But to plot overall your entire structure of your novel so that your events don't pile on top of your characters one after another um, because your characters do have to sleep. You ever read a book where you got the feeling that, that, that the character never went to sleep? I mean, it just they never, they didn't eat, they didn't sleep. Now, granted, my characters don't go to the bathroom. Did you notice? They only go to the bathroom to take a shower. There's no pissing or shitting in my books. There, that just doesn't happen. I mean, it happens. They do it, but it doesn't happen in front of readers. Really, do you care about somebody taking a piss? Because I don't. But when it's obvious that your character is moving through this, these events one after another, and three or four days have passed, and they've not gone to sleep once. That's a problem. 
you've piled your events in such a way that you don't have room for your character to actually be a human being if your character is actually a human being. Now, in the, there's there's some cycles that develop for certain archetypes of characters, like um, a cop would have working hours or... Um, you know, working hours are, are a good way to separate a character's day. Work hours, school hours. Um, then you know, there's meals. You can you can you can time a character's day by their meals. What meal are they at? Um, they're at dinner. That that means it's evening. And so you you you, you kind of space out your character's day with events like meals. Um, their work schedule, their school schedule. Uh, so that creates a pace in your story. But if you pile these events one after another on top of your character, um, it creates a, uh, a huge amount of momentum that's really difficult. You can't get off that train once you get on it. It becomes like this huge thing throughout your whole book so what i highly recommend is that you limit yourself to one or perhaps two events per chapter i structure mine um when i'm doing a professional work i structure my chapters into um two to three scenes and event wise i try to keep the events small on the front side of the climax the events small. They're like there's like, like the first event is usually a meeting, and then there's um, an expression of interest because I'm I tend to be an erotic or romance writer. Um, there's an expression of interest. There's a date. These are all small events, and they're building up. Of course, the, the really in a romance novel, your big event is going to be the sex scene, the first sex scene. That that's your first big event, and then you have um, your climax is usually is usually an external event impacting your characters. So if you pace yourself and you pace your events out you'll be able to recognize when you're piling events into a certain space, whether they're before or after your climax, and you never, ever want to pile events after the climax. When you're in climax, after the climax and you're in falling action, there are no more events to be had. There's nothing there. If you hit your characters with another impact, during falling action, you obliterate your climax. And it instead of, it's like a roller coaster, and you don't want to do that at the end of your book. Your book should steadily move up the hill to your climax. And then when you hit your climax, it should steadily move down the hill to your ending. There should be no roller coaster. You have to build tension, and build tension happens in a very, very defined space in a very defined way. And if you're roller coastering your reader, you're going to wear them out, and they'll stop reading your book just to get a break. And I bet, I wonder, <laughs> I wonder, you know, I actually had somebody email me last week because they had been listening to my short and junk, um, which has actually been a lot more writer focused than I, than I thought they would be. And um, she asked me, do you really put that much effort 
into your fan fiction? And the answer is yes, of course I do. Because the thing is, is while it is a hobby and I do do it for fun and I do do some things in my fan fiction that I wouldn't do professionally, what it boils down to is that if you that good writer habits and good craft is a habit. And if you get out of that habit and if you allow yourself to get lazy on certain concepts, it's going to show up everywhere, not just in your hobbies. It's going to show up if I stop paying attention to my character motivations or if I stop paying attention to my character's goals or if I stop paying attention to the pace of my par- of my paragraphs and of my chapters, it's going to show that laziness is going to move in to my professional work, and then that will suffer. So you have to develop these hob- these these skills and these habits, um, and keep them across the board, no matter what you're doing as far as your writing is concerned. You have to keep those habits. Very super, super, super important because you don't want to develop this laziness about your writing. You don't want to be that person who somebody else to find your problems for you all the time. Um, If you're moving towards a professional goal, you can't depend on, in fact, do not depend on an agent or even an editor to, t- to, p- to point out to you that your pace is terrible or your falling action is ridiculous or you're lacking emotional impact. Because if you lack these things, if you don't have these things already, they're going to send you a form letter that basically tells you to fuck off. I mean, it ain't going to literally say fuck off. What it's going to say is something like, your work's just not right for us, but good luck. You can't expect feedback, legitimate, genuine, fix-your-shit feedback from an agent, from an editor at a publishing house. So you need to, on your own and with your critique partners and with your betas, learn this for yourself and start doing this every single time. And if you come out of a beta process and you learn nothing and you don't change your methods to fix the problems that were discovered during your beta, you're wasting your beta's time, and you're wasting your own time too. So if you're not going to learn anything during your beta, don't fucking beta at all. Just pick it up and move on. If you're not going to figure out how to structure a paragraph and wait for your critique partner to point it out to you every single goddamn time she sends you a book, or if you're not going to figure out the basics of dialogue mechanics, or if you're not going to figure out how to keep your paragraphs from being 5,000 words long, how to use commas and how to use semicolons, yes, these, these mistakes happen. But if you don't learn in the beta process, then you are wasting everybody's time, and you shouldn't bother with it at all. And if you're going to be lazy about fixing your own mistakes, don't bother. Because writing is is more than a calling. It is a calling, and writers are born, they're not made. But if you're going to be lazy about the development of your own craft, be lazy by yourself. Don't inflict that laziness on other people. Okay, I've already discussed how I feel about cliffhangers. I, if you're a cliff, if you're one of those writers who likes to end every single fucking chapter on a cliffhanger, I hate you. 
I just hate you. Don't be that person. Just don't. Um, number four, first words. I find the first paragraph to be the hardest writing in the story. You know, I'm exactly the opposite. Jilly is actually on the um, phone, so I'm going to put her on if she doesn't mind. If she does mind, she'll tell me when she gets on the phone saying, no, bitch, I don't want to be on the radio. Um, And I'm going to ask her about this. Are you there? blog talk changed something. Did it really? Yeah, it used to beep to tell you when you were on the air. And now mm-hmm. it, this is really monotone dude going, unmuted. <laughs> well, you know, it's really funny because my, my dashboard looks a little bit different, too. It's very weird. Well, we, so so you, we got the flaming pink. So. so you say in your question, I find the first paragraph to be the hardest writing in the story. What's the process like for you, and how do you approach what to write first? Let me ask you first, how do you do it? Um. Hmm. Well, I I I can dither a lot with the first paragraph. I can you know throw out like ten things and like write ten starter paragraphs. And usually, sometimes once I get a good starter paragraph, I'm set. But sometimes that first paragraph is really hard for me to figure out where to start. And to some degree, I think it's part of the. Um, I wouldn't call myself exactly a plotter now. I'm more of a hybrid. I'm sort of between a plotter and a pantser. But I used to be mm-hmm. a diehard pantser. I mean, I was mm-hmm. that was my thing. And um, it, writing was very much um, you start from somewhere and you just kind of go. And I often had, like, no idea where I was going. It was like, it was like you know, I started, you know, doing creative writing with getting a starter sentence, right? And you just go from there. I don't know if anybody's done that kind of writing before, but it's kind of strange when somebody gives you a, a starter sentence about a fish on top of the Empire State Building and says, write from here. Um, I've considered doing it for a, a, a rough trade um, challenge. A well, that would be interesting. It would be interesting. I, I I wouldn't do it for Nano, obviously, but um, I was um, thinking I, I, I might do it for April or something. It would be really fun. Um, I don't have a process. Hmm. I don't I even find, think about I think, it. I think the blank page I find very intimidating. And one of the things I've found is, like, even when I'm doing rough trade is one of my strategies for getting through my daily posts or however often I'm posting is when I finish for the day, if I'm going to groove – I have to write something to start the next day or I freeze. Mhm. I agree. Um so I don't approach the next day's writing with a blank page. It just kind of makes me kind of go, "Oh." Um but with rough trade, but, I tend to write as long as I can, and then I pick out the section I want to post up for the day because that way it 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 ends in a very natural place on the posting and it isn't weird. Cuz sometimes I'll stop writing mid-sentence and walk away. And I wouldn't want to post that on Rough Trade. Yeah. But I, I first, don't actually first... have a process for my first paragraph. I, um, I'm i a firm believer in starting in the middle. So I tend to start any story in the middle of um, a decision or an event or an action. Um, so... I don't even. I mean, it just I don't even think about it. I I know the first event. I always know 
what's happening around my character before and after the actual start of the book. Like, I know what gets said before my opening, and so I'll have that in my head, and then I have to figure out where in the event that I picked to start in the middle, which is kind of like why Unspeakable Plot starts with um, the question, do we tell the world magic is dying? Because um, it's like, boom, you're you're right there. And then the reader's playing catch-up the entire time that scene is taking place. They're finding out all these things that happened before in the dialogue and in the background. And, you know, it's just, that's just the way I do it, and that's the way I've always done it. And I think that probably that my opening is is my f- genuine brush with pantsing. <laughs> I don't I don't think about it. <clears throat> I think I, really I think don't. my struggles I think my struggles often um um war with what I what I like to read, at least it used to. War with what I like to read versus what I um have often seen in writing. So a lot of writing has a huge amount of like a lot of a lot of I don't mean fan fiction although fan fiction can mimic this. A lot of books have um, a lot of exposition up front, like a lot of setting the scene, and I don't like to read that. I I don't find that to be a style of writing I particularly enjoy reading, where it takes you, you know, thirty forty pages to get into anything interesting happening. You're learning about the character. It, it drives me it drives me bonkers. And so when I when I was taking you know I when I took creative writing classes they talked about well you know and that's kind of almost the structure you learned. And so I think that I really struggled with, wow, I, I really don't want to read this and I don't want to write it. So I had this sort of mental block about starting a story. Um, I don't start my stories like that now, but I do find that I stumble more in the first two pages or so than I do anywhere else. Usually once I get going, I know what I'm doing. But, like, I started this story and um, I wrote about, I don't know, 2,000 words, it wasn't much. And I I just was like, what the hell is wrong with this? And I I couldn't figure it out, and then I realized I was in the wrong point of view. And it took me 2,000 uh-huh. words to figure out I was in the wrong point of view. <laughs> I did and that. And not wrong, point of, not wrong point of view in terms of, like, not the point of view I picked, but in terms of this is not an interesting point of view to be in. So I was boring myself, and therefore I'll be boring my readers. I did that with Dangerous to Know. That's my really? Stargate story from last year, um, it, and I wrote it from from Rodney's point of view. And I discovered about myself during that rough trade that I don't write a lot from McKay's point of view. That I tend to write primarily from John's point of view, and so I am. And that's why part two is told from John's point of view because I got to the part where okay, okay. John's going to come out of the pod, and I'm thinking, okay, finally, thank fuck, I can move into John's point of view, and it'll be really natural. And so I did that, you know, it was like a boom, a separation, and it was like, yay, because I was like, oh, God, oh, and I hated every minute of it, writing in McKay's point of view. And that's the thing is that when it happens, like in Ties That Bind or in Sentinels of Atlantis, it feels very natural, but I forced myself to write from Rodney's point of view because I knew John was going to be in the pod, and I can't write action to save my life. 
So I knew I couldn't be in John's point of view with him in the machine killing those wraiths because that's just a skill I do not have, and I've tried over and over again to develop it. And so I applied the whole damn thing knowing I would be in McKay's point of view and not realizing that that's just not my natural POV for Stargate. And I'd never noticed it before. Very uncomfortable. <laughs> it is it is uncomfortable. And then you back up and you go and for me it's kind of like I back up and then I go, Okay, what now? And, you know, I'm I like I said, I'm a lot better about this stuff now than I used to be, but I still find that I would rather write falling action and edit all day than face the blank page. And sometimes I just, you know, to to not deal with the beginning, that first paragraph or two, um, I'll just start with a scene near the beginning that I think is really interesting and write it and then work my way backwards. I mean, I'm really good at reverse engineering shit, so I might as well use that strategy. So sometimes I, I have to reverse engineer I, my beginning. I, I just don't put a lot of... Um, If you ask me which part of the story I value most, like the most I put effort into, I would say it was the middle. If you know, if you're talking about the beginning, the middle, and the end, um, and my endings, you know, my falling action and all that—that's you know, that's more craft work than it than creative work. But my beginning is the least important part to me. And I think because when I was in college, I was taught start in the middle. And go. So it's kind of like a racehorse. I come out of the gate. Boom. <laughs> I, and that's I the last thing. Of, go ahead. I agree in terms of importance. I agree on the waiting. But it's the mm-hmm. smoothest writing for me, too. Yeah. When I get to the middle, but, that's the writing I usually have no problem with. Right, right? Because it just kind of flows out of you. But mm-hmm. But once I'm out of the gate, I never look back at the gate. So... It makes me want to go look at all my, um, all my beginnings. <laughs> Just to see, you know. I'm probably more like that racehorse that's like had to pee. And it's like, wait a minute, maybe I need to go to the bathroom before we go. <laughs> Are you sure we have to go right this second? <laughs> but no, I am literally out of the gate and I never look back. I mean, my my beginning is, I I can't tell you. I don't believe that I have rewritten a beginning I can't picture the last time I actually rewrote a beginning. Maybe Lantian Legacy because I added so much to it, but I don't think so. I think I actually kept my original beginning. I I just don't. I mean, it's just, you know. So when I got to that question in your list, I was like, I don't even know what to do with that. <laughs> because I got the hiccups. Um Well, I've talked, to, I've talked to quite a few writers who uh, have the same struggle with the blank part, you know, that they kind of hit the blank page and they go, oh, what do I do with this? Um, and, um, you know, sometimes it helps to um, get a starter sentence from somebody, um, even if it's not the right starter sentence. So this is some of the strategies that I've used with people in the past. Um so I was working with somebody, this was like, I don't know, maybe a month or two ago, who just couldn't get going. And I said, well, tell me what your story's about, 
and who your characters are, and I gave them a starter sentence. I said, you don't have to keep it, but just start from here and, and write something. And mm-hmm. they ultimately changed the first paragraph, but they were able to get started. And I don't know why those first words trip some people up so badly, um, the getting going part, because you know, I know for me, once I get going, um, I'm really good uh, and golden in terms of the the writing. Um, but the sometimes it's just I look at that page and I go, my first word is going to be. Um, and I sometimes I, and I know the whole start in the middle thing. I know about starting on in the middle of the or some someplace interesting. It captures mm-hmm. my own attention. But um, and maybe sometimes the issue is that I have too many for myself. I have too many ideas. It's like oh well, there's like six characters that I could start this this story's point this story off in, and they all have something interesting to add. And well, which one do I want to do it from? And you know, it's just I don't know. I don't know if it's a, a an excess of ideas or if it's um, I don't know if it's just intimidation of the of the blank page. I don't really. I don't, never really tried to analyze exactly why I struggle there so much. What I would say is, if you do have an ensemble cast, that my rule of thumb is that I always, always, always start my story, my book, in the POV of one of my main characters, and I normally allow myself just to. Um. So either I'm going to start to it's, – it's going to be one of the two. It's it's not going to be a question of, say, six characters. I think that sometimes when you start a story in a secondary character's point of view, it can be misleading to your reader and also create confusion. Um, I don't know. Rogue says in the chat room, um, I have titles. I have trouble with titles. If there's no title, I have trouble. <laughs> I think from now on you should just label your books Trouble 1, Trouble 2, Trouble 3. <laughs> Our problem solved. But no, but seriously, um, I at one point in my life was very attached to my titles. And then I got uh, published. And then I they changed the titles of my books and um, because they don't care what you title your stuff. And I very, very, very quickly lost um, my attachment to titles. Uh, I often title a project during the plot stage, and sometimes it can be as simple. Well, you know, with my Harry Potter story, 10 years after the war, that was literally, I on my plot line, I had this um, date line, and I put 10 years after the war as the date for my story to take place. It was a future story for Harry Potter. And so it was going to take place 10 years after the war, and that ended up becoming the title. And it could have changed, but it didn't. <laughs> so, but I am I am no longer attached to titles because you, you have to break yourself of that when you're doing it professionally because they will um, change it on you, and then you have to deal with it. You don't have a choice. Because publishers don't ask you. They don't care what you think. Um, they're going to change it to whatever they want to change it to, whether it's for marketing reasons or because there's already a book in their publishing house that has a very similar title and they want to separate your book 
completely from that other title and that other author. Um, so there's a variety of reasons that you might not get to keep your title, so I highly, highly recommend that you not be attached to your titles if you're approaching um, publication from from a professional point of view. Because once you sign a contract, it becomes a product, and you lose a great deal of control over that product. Just an FYI. No, I really don't spend a lot of time on my... Now I'm kind of paranoid about it. I have to go back and check all my beginnings. <laughs> Just... I'm going to check every single one. Rough Trade has taught me how to how to do a lot of things a little bit differently, um, and because to some degree, um, there's a little bit about Rough Trade, the having to like post regularly and whatnot, and then the structured environment that mimics a little bit a professional writing environment. And I, by that I mean for me, it's like a technical writing environment where you don't have a choice to stumble over where to start when you're writing like a procedural manual or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you just have to do it. Um, so you just have to put something out there, and then you know you can fix it in the edit. Um, and um, but you know my beginnings, I've gotten a lot better about it. Um, but and and Rough Trade, you know, has helped me with also doing titles too. Although I still, when I'm not in Rough Trade, I find that. Um, um, my habits aren't as good sometimes when I'm not in rough trade. When I'm not in a challenge <laughs> environment. They're just not well, as good. If I'm in a, if I'm give you accountability. Yeah. Yeah. And accountability is a really good thing. Um and so sometimes it really helps to have writing partners or um people you communicate with that will help sit on you a little bit, um, that are willing to kind of prod you and uh and Five. help you when you get stuck. Five. That is huh? not an invitation for any of you by listening to prod her about her work. She picks no. somebody out to do that. She's not asking you to do it. Thank I already you. have people that do that. <laughs> <laughs> by invitation only. <laughs> um, yeah, but I'm just saying. You know, just saying. Exactly. Yeah, you thank you. I appreciate that. Disclaimer on that. <laughs> but uh, people. Um, but you know, it 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 really helps to have somebody that when you get stuck or whatever that you can, because you know there's no time in rough trade or when you're working for getting stuck, and so there's a different mindset. You kind of are in problem solving mode in a way. You're both creative, but you're also solving a problem, right? It's like I don't have time to get stuck. Got to move on to the next thing. Um, and work is a lot the it, same way when you're writing professionally. Yeah. Um, but when you're just writing on a day-to-day basis, if, especially if it's not your job and you don't have good habits around that, um, it's really easy to just go, oh, it's too hard today, and the blank page is too intimidating, and I'm just not going to um, do it today. You know what I mean? Yeah, people talk about the title thing on Rough Trade, and let me tell you why I do that. Um, number one, it's just a good habit to title your work. Um, it creates um, a sense of ownership to the material. Um, number two, I can't organize your shit on Rough Trade without a title, and I can't have 50 projects untitled. Really? 
It really Untitled so. one, untitled two, untitled three. <laughs> Just imagine that reader experience. Anyways, so that's you why are, you have to have a title when you sign up for a Rough Trade Challenge because it, it just for pure organization purposes, um, I can't put an untitled project in as a category. Well, I think that people take the and I didn't know this until um, I asked you if I could name something just such and such sequel, and you said I don't care if you name it Jilly's Awesome New Fic, um, just give me a title, and I was like, oh, maybe I'm taking this title thing a little bit too. You well, know, yeah, I just need a working title that that you're stuck with throughout the challenge. You can't change your mind halfway through the challenge. So I'm not going to go ahead and edit that shit for you. I'm just not going to do it. Um, but the title that you use on Rough Trade isn't concrete. You don't have to keep it. But in some situations, I think if you don't keep a title, you get into trouble. Like, say, for instance, Jilly had renamed Emergence after it left Rough Trade. And she put it up on her site, and 500 people asked her every day, what happened to Emergence? <laughs> Where did it go, Jilly? Oh, my God, I can't find it. That would have been because... epically, epically horrible. <laughs> so sometimes, yes, you do get stuck with a title. Um, and uh, sometimes uh, it, it doesn't matter, you know. But you literally could name your story Jilly's Awesome New Fic, and then it could be Jilly's Awesome New Fic Part 1, Part 2, and Part 3. I don't care, but you have to keep the damn thing the whole time you're on Rough Trade for that particular challenge. Uh, but you can change your title afterwards. I just need a working title that isn't going to be a copy of everybody else's working title. Title forthcoming, right? No. <laughs> No, but like my working titles are stuff like, um, like in my current whips right now, are Feral Tibbs Fic, Creepy Stalker Story. Um, oh, I want to read Creepy Stalker Story. <laughs> <laughs> Doctor Denozo, Forensic Scientist, and that is a working title. Um, and Requisite Hiatus Fic. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, I'll share you some of mine. Um, let's see. I'll go into um I actually have an NCIS folder. Uh I have one called Special Operations. That's just what it's called. That, that that's it for for NCIS. Um in my Avengers folder, this is actually a little, a little more fun. Um I've got uh Tony's No Good Bad Day. <laughs> Darcy isn't going to take your shit. <laughs> and Thor always has a party. And those are the titles. And, and they're not really titles. They're just, you know, that's how I'm keeping them separate in my head. Um, and and on you my know computer, what they are. So I do know and what it's they better, are. It's better than story one, story two, story three. Two, story three. You, know, you, it, never, you, gotta you never find anything. All shit. Every fucking one of those things got to figure out the story that you want to write on. Um, In the Darcy one, Darcy is actually Tony's um, daughter, and uh, General Ross kidnaps her. um, And it doesn't work out for him. It's it's not a good day for General Ross because he took the wrong one. Um, 
and uh, just yeah, but yeah, you do have to title it something just so you can keep track of it. If you have a whole bunch of shit, you know, I've got I've got over forty works in progress for Harry and Hermione, and um, as a result, I had to actually separate them by. Um, category. I have alternate universes, post Hogwarts, time travel, war stories. <laughs> Those are my categories. And then I have stuff in each one, you know, because I kept losing track of my. I'm going to time travel today, but I couldn't remember which one it was. And so I had to do a whole bunch of, you know. But just for, you, you have to organize yourself a, a little bit. And that's why I do have that one fit called Jenny's a Bad Wheezy. I literally have no title for it, but I had to have something so that when I wanted to work on it, I'd be able to find it easier. And she is a bad wheezy. She is a bad wheezy. <laughs> it's not inappropriately titled. <laughs> it w- it won't be the um the final title because that story is actually really um the content is really super heavy, and that title implies um, a level of crack that it really just isn't. I mean, it deals with child abuse and adultery and divorce and the loss of magic, and um, it's just not cracky. And so Ginny is a Bad Wheezy is a very crack-thick title. So I know I... I um, it'll get changed because I, I don't want. I would never want to mislead a reader when it comes to something like that. And when you're going to um, write a story that has a really heavy emotional punch, the last thing you want to do is re- mislead your reader into thinking they're going to get one thing and they get another. Yeah. Side story. I ca- I actually did that by accident once. I have this um, series of. I've only ever done one five things fic, and it was a Stargate one, and it's called Monsters, Inc. And um, I titled it Monsters, Inc. because um, I was actually watching Monsters, Inc. um, with my niece when I was uh, writing the story. I was at my sister's house watching my niece, and so I had my laptop, and I was like, what if they go through the gate and encounter all these monsters? And it's kind of cracky. Um, no, it's it's a lot of crack. Um, and so I named it Monsters, Inc. And I had two different readers contact me to make sure I hadn't written horror. Because they had no idea the reference to Monsters, Inc., which is a Pixar movie. Right. Um, I, I, I was a little befuddled, like, how could they misunderstand that? But okay. But they weren't, they weren't American, and so they didn't get the reference. They had not seen the movie. And you think about it, you know, some adults just totally ignore animated films, and they don't have kids. They might not have ever even heard of Monsters, Inc. And so they were they were concerned that I had written some horror, and they didn't want to read it if it was horror. I'm like, oh, no, it's just pure crack. You'll be fine. <laughs> Rodney gets the dragon. <laughs> I think John gets the dragon. <laughs> but one of, one of my working titles sounds kind of cracky, and that's why, you know, I just – because it's the Feral Tibbs fic, because it sounds like there's something mm-hmm. wrong with the fic. Like, the fic itself is <laughs> the, the, the fic, feral. The fic is feral, yeah. It's a feral fic. <laughs> but it's really not. <laughs> but that's probably one of the, um, and it's got the crackiest title, but it's probably one of the uh, 
So I understand your Ginny is a bad wheezy thing because this that one's got probably one of the crackiest titles and it's probably one of the darkest stories I'm working on other than the creepy stalker thing because creepy stalker stories are always a little bit dark. No, yeah, yeah. I love stalker stories, though. I love them. But, yeah, you know, I would never leave a crack title on something so serious as that. That's not to say that I wouldn't title a fic, Jenny is a Bad Wheezy. It just wouldn't be that particular fic. Yeah. Um, because it is a really heavy um, story about, um, you know, emotional sacrifice and um, child abuse and neglect and... um adultery and it's just it's really super heavy and so i think that whenever i encounter a story that has this really light sounding flowers and meadows title and it ends up being some really dark shit i'm thinking to myself author you're an asshole what's wrong with you so i don't (laughs) want to be that asshole writer i don't want to be that kind of asshole writer did I tell you that uh, – I don't know if I told you about this. I might have. Um, I mentioned it to you in the – when in the not to you specifically, but I might have mentioned it um, in public. But I, um, my sister had wanted to see um, some of the artwork I had done. And um, so I just zipped her up all of the banners I've done. And I didn't tell – she doesn't know my pen name. So I didn't tell her which ones were for me or which, you know, because there's no identifying information about who the mm-hmm. artist is. So she's scrolling through them, and of course she's having she's a non fanfic person, so she's having her reaction to pairings, which was amusing me tremendously. <laughs> I just bet. And most of her worst reactions were to my banners. <laughs> her, her absolute worst reactions to the pairings were anything related to Tony. She's like, no, no. But um, she gets to I wasn't waiting for you. And she pauses and she goes, someone needs to teach this person how to title a story. That's the worst title ever. Do they not want anyone to read it? (laughs) And I had to put her on mute because I was laughing so hard. (laughs) I couldn't communicate with her anymore. And I was like, I "I can't tell her that's one of mine because I don't want her to, you know. But she was just like, and she just ranted. She ranted about it for like five minutes. Like, that's just terrible. Don't they teach you guys any skills? That's so funny. I like that title. I liked it too. <laughs> I think it's very fitting. Well, obviously, we can't let her title any of our shit. <laughs> She's not good at it. <laughs> but, you know, no, I think that um, titles are. Uh, titles give you ownership and. Um, I believe that when you're uh, creating something, um, having that sense of ownership is is very important. It it gives you some latitude, whether you recognize it or not. um, That's your shit, and um, it it can be it can create a positive mental environment to work in. So I highly recommend you title your shit and be proud. Even if your sister is not. <laughs> um, but she was she was see. very she was very much she was very supportive of everything that I had done. It's just mm-hmm. her reaction to everything, um, all the pairings and stuff was kind of like 
I, I don't know about this. I don't know, but are you sure? People really read those together, and I was like, yes, they really do. But not many people, right? I'm like, I'm not having this discussion. <laughs> I think you'd be really surprised. Your final question was, have you ever abandoned a story, and what's the process you go through in making that decision? Um, I have, tr- I yes, I do. If if I get extremely frustrated with something that's not working and I can't make it work and I can't, but fan fiction it's it's not the same because there's just there there are constraints on you when you write for money, and um, sometimes an idea just doesn't work the way you want it to work and you, and you have to set it aside. Um, I've only ever abandoned one fan fiction project and that is Dark Places in the Soul and there was no thought process. I rage quit. I rage quit it. <laughs> I, you know, I had gotten so many prods on that particular story because um, I was working on what might have been and um, – of course, this was, um, again, it was het audience, uh, het readers, and they kept pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing. And finally, I just declared on my live journal that I would never, for the rest of my life, write on that story again. So, yeah, I did it completely out of spite. I didn't even think about it because I was so fucking irritated with their with their assumptions and their entitlement and their goddamn homophobia that I wanted to stab somebody. Um, so that was that. But since I write for me, I don't um, abandon my stuff um, as a rule as far as fan fiction goes. Even if you're not seeing it, it doesn't mean I'm not writing on it. You're just not seeing it. Because currently I'm at 45K on the next part of Ties at Bind. You're all welcome. <laughs> we are you might get it. You might get it next year, I'm just saying. <laughs> you should just, oh, here, lady holder, I'm not working on this like six years from now. Would you Would you read it now, please? Tell me what you think. <laughs> But, yeah, so what about you? Beyond your first into fandom, have you ever abandoned a project um, just because you couldn't work on it anymore for one reason or another? Um, Well, and there's... There's two answers to that. There's two, well, two categories to that, really. The first is that um, when I did a lot of pantsing, um, I, I because I did a lot of stream of consciousness writing um, where I just sat down and wrote. I gave mm-hmm. myself a word limit um, how long I could write before I knew where the story was going, um, because otherwise I could write eternally and never have an end, right? Um, mm-hmm. So my boundary to starting something and not knowing the end ahead of time was if I couldn't determine the end within 20K that I had to stop writing. And I probably now would give myself a little less room than that. I'd probably rope that mm-hmm. in about 10, 10K because I mm-hmm. now that I think I can tell a story in less than 20,000 words, I don't want to give myself 20,000 words to figure out right. where the end of the story is. Um, so... There have been many writing projects where I started and I hit that limit and I hadn't figured out where the hell it was going. So it was like an idea that just never quite gelled. And so 
it's not so much that I wanted to quit. It's that I just have to set boundaries around pantsing or it's just out of control. I don't know that um, I would consider that abandonment. I consider that, you know, a writing exercise. I indulge yeah. in that all the time. Um, but the actual abandonment, um, I don't know. This, but on the other side, in terms of actual abandonment, sometimes I just start disliking something um, for a lot of reasons. Um, readers? Readers are, are a big factor. Sometimes I get overly harassed about something, which is the same thing that you talked about. Um I almost I almost um quit emergence um about a month ago. Yeah. Um because I got really pissed off about something somebody had said. Um and you know, I just decided to actually what I did is I just put it on hold for a while and then I you know, stopped looking at my feedback folder <laughs> for um a couple of weeks and just everything got backed up because I just needed to take a break from hearing from that audience for a while. Um, mm-hmm. Because, you know, a lot of people, there's a lot of, I get a lot of great feedback on that story, but, um, you know, it's like every time I post something new, I get an, e- you know, e- an email from some, the, some, some people saying, have you abandoned this other story? Why aren't you working on it? <laughs> and it's like, if I, you know, I so, them out. I don't want to hate what I'm writing, mm-hmm. so I think that's the biggest factor in what I abandon a story is if I'm hating it, for whatever reason. I mean, sometimes it's just like, you know, I'm just not digging this pairing anymore or, um, you know, whatever. Because, um, like, I have, um, and sometimes it's not just a story, maybe it's a series. It's like the Hobbit story I wrote in April. Um mm-hmm. I replotted that in the middle of writing because I didn't know if I was going to stick with the series because I plotted a lot more to that. And I plotted it to be shorter and cut off before a critical piece of information was revealed. Um, And the reason is because I figured if I revealed that critical piece of information, I was committing to writing a second book, a second story. And I decided to just... Let the story end natu- let the story end and be complete as it was, and then take a step back and reevaluate that and decide if I wanted to actually pursue that idea further so um and I'm still trying to decide I'm inclined to think I'm probably not going to pursue finishing that whole plot outline that I had for that series and just let that story be um, this weirdo one shot thing that I did. Um, but yeah, so I actually had that epiphany that I was thinking about abandoning the series while I was still writing the first part and went, I need to replot so that I don't have this critical thing revealed and leave this dangling thing out there. I like abandoning. I plot everything. Um, and I don't like abandoning either. I don't like to give up on an idea. Uh, so I'll have a folder full of stuff that I've not technically, you know, like mentally abandoned. Um, even if I haven't opened it since 2005, it's still my shit. <laughs> and I might come back to it. 
have to open it occasionally to make sure it hasn't like corrupted. <laughs> it's still there. You kind of pet it and go, "Hey, okay, thank you, thank you for still being there. I appreciate it." Um, but yeah, you know, it's just um, abandoning a story. I don't like to give up. Just the idea of giving up on something. Like, oh, I'm not giving up. I don't give up. That's just. Um, but I, I did rage quit that one story, and it was really, really frustrating. Um, because I had um, six more novellas plotted for that series, and um, but I just got so fed up with their bullshit. And then someone sent me an email um, explaining to me how disappointed they were that yet another Stargate writer had fallen um, into the depraved trap of writing Slash, and I fucking lost it. The depraved trap of writing slash. What bullshit? I just said, I'm like, what? It was like aneurysm face before aneurysm face even existed, okay? Because like, it was just like, oh, oh my God, I hate you. I hate you. And then that was it. I was done. I was just done. And I never went back. No. So, yeah, you know, I, I, a lot of times um, an entitled reader can ruin this, can ruin a story for you, and it makes it really difficult to want to continue. I've got a reader, um, I've got several readers for um, Harry Potter and the Soulmate Bond that I have come to dread seeing their name in my email box. Um, and I don't them are, you. I know, right? You saw that today, didn't you? Um, I posted something to the mod group from one of my emails just to give them an example of the bullshit that was in my mailbox today. Um, And some of it's just passive-aggressive. I hope you're okay. I hope you're still writing. I hope you haven't abandoned my fic. It's the only one I read on your site. (laughs) My eyebrow is twitching, Just, just, just thinking about it. And some of them are really terrible. Um, and they get filtered into the asshole file. Um, you know, um, I actually had someone use the F word in a, um email to me, and I mean the F-A-G word. Um, I don't like saying that word. Um, and uh, what, what they said was, is I hope you finish the first season of Harry Potter and the Soulmate Bond before you post any more of that F-A-G shit. What the hell is wrong with people? Why would you say homophobic crap to a slash writer? Do they really think that's going to get them anywhere? Just asking me to cuss them out was what they were doing. And, yes, I did cuss them out. I I have reached my limit on that kind of bullshit and keeping my mouth shut and not saying what I think of their bullshit. And I've unfriended five people on Facebook this week for being Republicans. I'm just not putting up with it. I got news for you on Facebook. If you're listening and you're one of my Facebook um, readers, um, friends, if you post a Confederate flag on your fucking profile, I'm deleting you. I'm unfriending you. I unfriend you. 
If you post anti-immigration shit on your wall, I'm going to unfriend you. If you're pro-Trump, I'm going to cuss you out and then unfriend you. I, because I can't be associated with that level of stupid. Anyways. <laughs> just Someone just poked me in um, IM and said, would you consider um, some of your unfinished ideas, putting them up for adoption? It's kind of oddly phrased. Oh, and the answer God. is no. The answer is no. I can I'm feel very, the I'm, anger building at that. Um, I'm I'm very selfish about my writing. I would never, I would never um, farm it out for adoption. So if uh, um, I'm assuming that's a poke about my nearly rage quitting emergence. That if I were to rage quit it, would I let someone take it over? The answer is no. No. No, I would never. Oh, God, the very idea. Oh. <laughs> My whole face screwed up like I was sucking on a lemon. Oh, just the, oh, no. I couldn't do it either. There is absolutely no way. I have a difficult time writing with a partner. Lady Holder can, can attest to that. Um, there is no fucking way I could give over a work in progress to another person. No. Mm-mm. I have a hard time just giving ideas up, you know? Like, I mean, I I did it I did it at one time in my life have I, you know, given a bunny up for adoption and I hated it. <laughs> I I gave a bunny to um to farm bunnies on on Facebook, and then I I've, I've done it twice, and both times I walked away and and never looked back at what was going on with it, and purposefully turned off notifications so I wouldn't see the conversation because um, I know Cinna adopted one of them, and I'll read Cinna's work because I trust that she um, won't be a total fucking asshole about it. But when you give your idea to somebody else it becomes theirs and then they can do what they want with it and fuck it up and make a mistake and abuse your characters and i always say that i would be flattered if someone wrote fan fiction um of my work you know professionally but to be truthful i as flattered as I would be to have inspired other writers that way, I would never in a million years read it. No. No. I couldn't either. Mm-mm. I couldn't read other people's interpretation. of, Especially the issue for me is the characters, because I'm very attached to the way I characterize. Um, mm-hmm. And so to see people... Like misinterpreting. Someone remixed one of my something of mine once, and they took my favorite OC and did something completely different with them. They made them um, really horrible. Um, I've had that experience, and it it hurt my heart. <laughs> I cried. I'm not yeah. gonna lie. Lady Holder could even tell you that I was I was a sobbing wreck, um, and it was Matt Shepard that got abused in that particular fic and it was fucking horrific 
not just because it was my original character, but because of how careful I am with Matt Shepard because of the real Matt Shepard, and to see my character degraded and assaulted um, that way was traumatizing. It was really traumatic. Um, Lucas said something in the ch- in the chat room that I want to. I want to. I saw that. Someone asked if they could farm out if they could farm out. Hmm, someone chatted um, out my Hobbit stories so someone could write my sequels because apparently I'm not fast enough. Um, if someone came to me and said bullshit like that, Lucas. I would still be cussing about it. I would be on Tumblr every fucking day cussing them out by name. I would be like, hello, so-and-so, today is your, this is your daily cuss out. (laughs) And it would happen every fucking day for weeks. Oh, my God. No. But, you know, that that level of um, greediness and, ugly-ass behavior is actually becoming commonplace in fandom. That entitlement and that idea that that readers have more rights to your work than you do. Because when I took my site private, I got a lot of flack in my email about it because how dare I do something like that? Because apparently... From some points of view, I have a duty and a responsibility to fandom to make my work readily and easily available. And then I had no right to get pissed off about my work being um, distributed on a Yahoo group that because it was fan fiction and it wasn't... um, my intellectual property, and I got news for you, it actually is my intellectual property because it's a derivative work. Now, I can't earn money off of it, and I can't copyright it, but it is actually my intellectual property. Know the difference, assholes. Um, Those words are mine in that particular order. They belong to me. And if... See, that's one reason why professional... Writers cannot read their own fan fiction because if, for instance, a professional writer came, went on to AO3 and read something from their own fandom and ended up using that, the original writer of that fan fiction could sue them and win for plagiarism. That's, that's plagiarism. Even if they're you know, copying fan fiction of their own work, which is why professional writers should never, ever read in their own fandom because it's very dangerous. You could pick up an idea or um, a situation or a scene just by accident because it's your material, especially if you have writers in your fandom that write very similar to you. They're emulating you. You could end up inadvertently stealing something that could get you in trouble because it might not be their copyrighted material and they can't earn money off of it, but it is a derivative work and it is the intellectual property of the original, of the fan fiction writer. So, yeah, well, these idiots were even trying to tell you that you didn't have the right to determine what your comment policy was on your own Oh, site. yes. 
Oh, yes, I absolutely got that whole free speech um, thing again, and um, I and didn't have the right to delete comments on rough trade. I didn't have the right to um, to infringe on their free speech rights. And they some really preachy stuff about, about what the purpose of comments were, and you didn't have any right to subvert the purpose of commenting. Like... <laughs> Oh yeah, there, there was that whole paragraph on how um, it was basically his duty to impart, um, to instruct writers on what they were doing wrong, and by having the policy that I had, that I subverted his ability to be productive in the fandom. And then I had to point out to him that just because he had an opinion didn't make it valuable. That is an ego and a half. It might even be two full egos. That's just it might unreal. be. But a lot of people in fandom assume that yes, you are entitled to your opinion, but nowhere anywhere is anybody required to listen to it. And they don't have to stay your friend after you express it. I know, right? So free speech you think, doesn't mean lack of consequences. That's right. So if you think Donald Trump is the best thing since sliced bread, well, you just have to live without with less friends. <laughs> <laughs> For real. <laughs> and if my if my if my sweet affection for Bernie Sanders makes you uncomfortable, by all means unfriend me. I don't care. <laughs> I love that little old man. I love him, and I don't care if you don't. But, yeah, you know, there's a um, – readers can ruin a story for you. I mean, they can really just take every ounce of joy out of writing um, that you have. and they, they can just strip you bare and, and leave you um, – disillusioned and hurt and and angry and just as unable to be creative as it is possible to be. And it is actually beyond writer's block and it enters some other dimension of of unable to write. It has nothing to do with creativity or inspiration and it is just like could you please ask me one more fucking time if I'm going to update this week. That would be great. And I think that the there's a particularly I don't think reader entitlement is good by any stretch of the imagination at all. But I mean I have seen authors who decide to abandon a whip and they offer it up for adoption. I don't know how they do that personally. Um but I I kind of I'm not sure if I'm I'm sort of torn between a kind of horror and admiration over the fact that they can do that. Uh, but they're kind of giving their, you know, their readers an opportunity to have some closure over that story. But it's kind of amazing. It's like, you know, and, and like in Lucas's case, Lucas only posts finished works. Um, so it's really, I mean, you're doing, you're doing your readers, I, to me, you're doing your readers, or to me, you're doing, it's a good thing for the readers when authors post finished works, right? Um, there's 
you'd think that that would be something that would be met with appreciation. And instead, it's where's the sequel? When's the next I thing? Know. Can we, I can know, we farm right? out the next part? You can post a hundred fucking K in a single day and some asshole will come along five hours after you're done and ask you where the sequel is. My eyebrows twitching again. When I was posting emergence on AO three, because um, there was a lot of people who hadn't seen it before I started putting on AO three, uh, I was posting four or five chapters a day. Because uh, I was trying to get it up as fast as I could, but it's just that's how long it was taking me to format and put stuff up without burning myself out. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had posted mm, in the course of the first four days of posting. That's about you know a hundred thousand words I'd put up. And somebody says, "Please don't torment your readers and post faster." <laughs> I'll go fuck yourself. <laughs> Oh, oh my like, god. Torment? Oh my god. Torment really? Torment? That's the that's how the dare word you, you give them a thousand, how, how dare you give them a hundred thousand words like that all at once? The torture that you're doing. Mm. What is wrong with you? I mean all two hundred like two hundred and ten thousand words went up in like, you know, ten days and you know, it was like why can't you post this faster? I was like, Seriously people? It's because it takes time. <laughs> Next time, just post this one big chapter. Just slap 200K <laughs> on chapter one. Thank you. There you go. But yeah, you just, fucking like so, that, asshole. It seems like it doesn't matter with some segments of fandom. It doesn't matter how much you do that is, in a way, considerate of the reader. There are readers who just demand more. And I think it is so offensive to say I, I'm so mortally offended on Lucas's behalf that somebody would would say, "Can we farm out your your sequels to other writers?" That is just so far beyond the pale. I, you know I'm what it gonna... says? It's 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 it says I don't find any value in you as a writer. Anybody can do what you just did, and I want somebody else to do it because I'm tired of waiting for you. That's what it's saying, whether they meant for it to or not. Sahara says in the in the chat room, I'm probably horrible, but on stories I have posted elsewhere, I don't read a single comment I get. I don't open the emails. I don't look at them. The only emails I respond to in relation to comments are when an author responds to a comment I left. You're not horrible. I wouldn't read them either. I don't read my professional comments, like um, you know, on Amazon or Barnes and Noble. I don't read any of it. Every once in a while, I'd be surprised. Oh, look, it's got five stars. But I won't go down and look because I don't know. Because <laughs> there's going to be some asshole in there. It's going to say something that's going to piss me off. Because I used to, and then I got the dread. Like I got this review, I got this review, and it was like, God, it was a long time ago. It was in a magazine. Um, I'm thinking to myself, why the fuck? He started, she or he, I forget, started the review with, I don't normally read erotic romance. Then why the fuck? 
fuck are you reviewing my book? What is wrong with you? Really? Go review so a, that, a genre you know. I don't read the reviews. I don't read the reviews. So I don't blame you for not reading comments on AO3. I wouldn't either. Um, I only read them on my site because I have my comments moderated. <laughs> and I hardly ever respond to them because once you start responding on a regular basis, people get pissy when you don't respond to theirs. I got oh. chastised recently very sternly for not responding to reader comments. And, Did you um, tell them to kiss my ass? Um, what I told them is I said, you know, uh, I said I appreciate, actually I said I very much appreciated the comment that you left. Um, I, uh, and actually it was one of my blackout times when I wasn't reading comments because I was trying not to abandon the story they happened to have commented on. Mm-hmm. And um, I said, but you do realize that I spent like, you know, months and months of my life working on this story, and you spent five minutes on a comment. This is not a zero-sum game. I don't owe you anything. I don't owe you anything. They got really annoyed. Um, They said, well, you could show a little appreciation. I said, for what? I I gave you entertainment for free, motherfucker. (laughs) It didn't cost you a damn thing. For for reference, and this is I know some I know somebody's already writing this fucking email. But before I even say this, I've had nineteen thousand comments on my website. If I responded to comments after posting a work in progress, I would not be able to do anything else but respond to comments for sometimes upwards of a week after posting. I'm not going to waste my time repeatedly saying thank you for commenting on my shit. Because really, I already did my part. I don't owe you a thank you for commenting. I wrote you 100K. There you go. Boom. You're welcome. (laughs) I mean, just, what? (laughs) That's just not how that works. That's just not how I think that works. I appreciate hearing from my readers. I really, really do. It's great. Now, sometimes I do uh, get backed up on the reading because I go into like what I call these dark modes where I don't look at the comments. But, you know, um, in general, I very much appreciate it. But like you said, I can't, you know, I can't, I don't have the time to respond to all of them. I do respond probably about 30, 40% of the time, but sometimes even that, I could spend like three hours responding to comments and not get through them all. And I just, I mean, it's like I have way three hours to write or three hours to respond to comments and, you know. For the record, I would never want you to spend three hours responding to comments. That's just (laughs) the stupidest thing. I really, I really don't get it. I often respond to emails. Um, Sometimes I don't. I mean, I'm just being for real. Sometimes I don't respond to emails, um, especially the entitled ones. Um, If somebody's having a problem logging into my site, yes, I respond to that. I have no problems responding to that. I knew that when I took my site private, I would have to, you know, I would have to moderate the membership. I understood that. Um, But 
I don't have time to respond to comments. That's a waste of time. It just really is. It's a waste of time. And I see those people on AO3 responding to each one. I'm thinking, bless your heart. <laughs> Stop that. <laughs> Go write something. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I saw a, a reader rant about how, um, you know, readers um, take the time to re- tell an author they appreciated their story, and the author can't take a moment to say thank you. And... Um, uh, I had a really hard time not starting a public shitstorm over that because, you know, there's there's a trade-off. There's a trade-off there. These are probably the same readers who are, you know, bitching about less thick. And I, you know, I don't know. It's it's it, it, But it really is not a zero-sum game. It, it's not like someone spends two minutes writing a, a I love this thick comment and we're equal. <laughs> you haven't spent nearly as much time on this shit as I did. And it was free. <laughs> for heaven's sakes. It was free. I don't respond to people who pay for my shit. Now, I recently responded to a comment that was six months old on my website because it caught my interest when I was reading through my comments. Because I do read my comments. Sometimes when I'm bored and I can't write, I'll go read my comments because they're really nice. I appreciate my comments. I do really appreciate my comments. But that doesn't mean I'm going to spend half a fucking day responding to your bullshit. Well, we're down to a minute and a half. Um I want to thank Jilly for joining me tonight on the radio show and accomplishing what we accomplished and answering all those questions. And don't forget, if you have questions about writing or if you want to bitch about something and want me to bitch about it for you or whatever, just go over to the Ask Me Anything page and write a question down and maybe I'll um, handle it on the regular show or on the short and junk episodes. You guys have a great weekend. Don't do anything I wouldn't do, which leaves you pretty much wide open. Make sure you have bail before you leave the house. (laughs) Our new public service announcement goes like this. Do not, under any circumstances, equate penetration with submission. Have a great evening. Bye. Shut up and sit down.